fourth lesson is from First Thessalonians. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again, everyone. We are looking at... um, Songs of Hope during Advent, and we're looking at uh, the Psalms during this series. And so if you want to follow along you ref- or want to refer to what we're talking about, it's actually in the second reading, not the one that Catherine just read. And Advent is a season of waiting, and it's a season of reenactment where we step into the shoes of ancient Christians who were waiting on the Messiah. And we try to step into their shoes in the same way that Jesus in Advent steps into ours. And also because our lives are marked by waiting. If you're a kid, you're a student, maybe you're waiting for Christmas break, you can't wait for exams to be over with, or you can't wait to get your driver's license, so you're not dependent upon your parents anymore. Or maybe you're a little bit older, and you're waiting on your son or daughter to come home from college. You miss them tremendously. You want to see changes in your life, and so you're waiting for the new year to really begin to address some things and patterns in your life that you want to change. Maybe you're pregnant and you want the pregnancy to be over with finally. Maybe you're waiting on test results, academic or medical. Or maybe like me, you're tired of waiting on the person to turn right at the red light. No one's coming. Just go. Just go. Our lives are marked by waiting. But waiting as a follower of God can be disorienting because It's not so much that in our rational minds we would think that being a Christian or a follower of God would mean that God is the solution to all of our waiting, but still when we see other people getting the things that we're waiting for, maybe we have moments where we ask, what am I doing wrong? Where is God in this? Or maybe what Asaph is asking here, why do I bother? Why do I bother following God? He's asking these same questions that I'm sure that you have asked before. And we don't know much about Asaph. We don't know much about the specific situation that was going on, whether he was the writer or just the transcriber 
of this psalm, but it says that he was losing his balance. He was having a crisis of faith. Surely, verse 1, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. He was disoriented. And it was not just because the world was the way it was, but it was because he was a follower of God in that world. And what disoriented him? What threw him off balance? It was the prosperity of the wicked. Like Billy Joel did, looked around the world and said, hey, only the good die young. I might as well live in a certain way that fits that model. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because sinners are much more fun. Now, everyone, only, yeah. You did it. That has never worked before. I was prepared to sing it, but thank you. Only the good die young. That's his observations of the world. And Asaph has the same sort of thing. He looks around and said, their bodies are healthy and strong. These are the people that don't really try and are perfectly thin and perfectly tan and have good teeth, and they have low cholesterol, even though they eat whatever they want. Nobody likes those people. And Asaph looked at those people and said, why do they prosper? They're not doing it right. They're not doing life right. They have no fear of death. It says here in the passage they have no struggles, but underneath that is this very obscure word, and in older translations it says that they have no pangs of death. They live reckless lives, and then they die suddenly without any pain. Verses 6 and 8, they're arrogant, they're boastful, they look down upon people, belittling, mistreating others. And then verse 9 and 11, it says that they're also cynical about God. They lay claim to heaven and earth, and why not? Because how would God know? Is He really looking? Is He really noticing? They are people that are partying like rock stars and are getting fat and happy and living into old age and then dying peacefully in their sleep. Sounds pretty good, huh? These are the the Keith Richards of the ancient world. That guy's, you know, he's taken more drugs than whole genres of music. And people were amazed that he was still alive back in the 80s. Keith Richards turned 75 this month. He's still touring. He has hundreds of millions of dollars. And he smokes more than anyone you can imagine. And he doesn't look so great, but, you know, he's still, still ticking. One theory I like as an aside, I probably, since I don't have a whole lot of time, shouldn't share this, but I like this. He says that the massive amount of drugs that Keith Richards has consumed over the years all combined to form a previously undiscovered anti-aging compound. (laughs) That's why he's still alive. So the problem, maybe for you as you look around the world for Asaph, is that this is working for everyone. This is what the wicked are like, verse 12, always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. And this observation creates an existential crisis in his life because when he looks at the arrogant, verse 3, I was 
envious. I was envious. He sees self-absorbed, self-indulgent lives, and everything seemed to go their way. And he doesn't say immediately, well, you know, they'll get what's coming to them. He says, I want to be like them. It's envy. And this is the, the worst sin to get. If you can catch sin, envy is the worst one to catch because there's, have you thought about this? There's no payoff to envy. Lust, avarice, greed, drunkenness, all of those have sort of momentary pleasures attached to them, and you kind of understand why people would go in that direction until it all crumbles, obviously. But envy doesn't have that. Envy just leads to bitterness, and it leads to more envy, and there's no payoff. And he's looking around the world, and he's seeing what's going on, and he's saying, I actually envy that. I want to be like that. And so he begins second-guessing. Verse 1, God is good to those who are pure in heart, but not in my case. In vain have I kept my heart pure. And he's praying, friends, his disorientation. He's praying it. He's talking to God about it. And I take comfort in the fact that there are prayers like this in the Bible. In fact, this is kind of the tenor of most prayers that we have. I take comfort in the fact that the Bible isn't full of just pious platitudes that feel disconnected with our daily lives or people that are constantly overcoming, constantly modeling this triumphant faith as if this should be the expectation of normal people everywhere. But instead, we get stories and we get prayers of people like this one that are full of failure and are full of heartache and are full of disorientation. And so that when we move into that, we have this realization that not that this necessarily has to be normal, but it normalizes it in terms of the experience of faith, that other people have been there, that other people experience this, that have a faithful relationship with God. And that God allows these into His holy Scripture because this is real life. And this is, in fact, what Advent says, is where God chooses to meet us in our real life, in the disorientation and the darkness of our world. That's where Jesus steps in. And I think that begins to give us a hint, and I'll try to wrap this quickly of how Asaph moves from this disorientation to order, to have a bit of renewal. And I think because Advent reminds us that faith is not a possession, but it's something that resembles hopeful waiting. Faith is patience with the way things are in hope of a coming future. And it's leaning into that future in some way that makes sense of our disoriented world. There's three things. One, Asaph said he was troubled in verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, I'm not just highlighting this because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to tell you, you know, coming to church is a good place to be. It's a good place to bring your disorientation. But if you think about it, I think it's empirically true that none of us are our best selves on our own. 
And this is especially true in matters of faith. And throughout the Bible, we see lives that are oriented to the community, oriented to the sanctuary of God, the special meeting place where they can go and have Scripture read to them. They can go and be part of a community that provides them with this plausibility structure. So when they're on their own, they can remember, this community helps me make sense of the world and helps me know that I'm not alone in this. There are other reasonably intelligent, reasonably healthy people that believe this same thing, and I can be reminded of that by being a part of this community. We need fellow travelers in this journey, and I'm saying that not with the expectation that all of us here are Christians, but wherever you are in the journey, we need fellow travelers. And the church, the sanctuary of God, is meant to provide that for you if you're a follower of God. Because disorientation, it is most disorienting when we're alone. It's most disorienting when we're isolated. When we don't have someone to say, I've been there. Can I share something with you that helped? Or I've been there and just be willing to sit with them. It can be most disorienting when we don't have a community of friends around us that are trying to move in the same direction. Asaph is troubled until he remembers, until he is present in the sanctuary of God. And also he has this perspective of time. He says, then I understood their ultimate destiny. Now that sounds a little bit more glib and a little bit more self-congratulatory than I think it is. What I think he is saying is that not, well, they'll get what's coming to them, and so I just got to stick it out. I got to have a terrible life because one day I'll get a good life in heaven, and all these other people don't know it. I don't think it's as simplistic as that. What I think he is saying is that life can only be properly evaluated from a distance, and in this case, the distant future. In 1985, Marty McFly, not the real 1985, but the fake one, he travels back in time from to 1955, but when he gets there, he still knows the future. 1985 has already happened in a weird way. And so he makes these decisions that seem weird to everyone in that reality. And he knows that the girl that has the hots for him is his mom, which is kind of gross. He knows Doc Brown is gunned down by terrorists in Twin Pines Mall. He knows when lightning is going to strike. These things haven't happened yet. And so a lot of his actions seem strange. Why pick a fight with Biff when he's like this tall, you know? But he's living in a certain time period on the basis of a future reality that he knows will be true. And then he knows will unfold and make sense to everyone else only as they experience that reality. I think that is what Asaph is saying. He remembers the future. And then finally, he remembers verse 23 to 26. He remembers God himself. You see, it's not only a promise of future events to live into, but it's a personal relationship to sustain you in the present. He says, you hold my right hand, the image of this parent that is giving guidance to a child. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me 
into glory. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And these are just staggering words because what he is saying is that, similar to David last week, that if I lose everything and I still have you, I can make it. This is the spiritual relationship that's depicted in human relationships throughout the Bible where Moses has his Aaron, Ruth and Naomi have one another, Barak and Deborah. I can't do this alone, but if I have you, I can move into the unknown. And we see it's not a pious denial of what's really going on. It's not a pious denial of confusion or pain because Asaph says, my heart and my flesh may fail. It's actually reality. But it's something to hold on to in the midst of disorientation. And so he comes back to where he started in verse 1. Not just God is good to Israel. God is good in the abstract, but it's not really paying off for me. But he comes from God is good to Israel to personally, it is good to be near God. The point of faith is not possession of outcome. The point of faith is possession of God. It is possession of relationship with Him. Life may be full of mystery, maybe full of things that don't seem to add up. But we're sort of stuck with that no matter what our faith perspective is. Even if you're a completely non-religious person in this room, there's still mystery and there's still heartache and there's still things that don't make sense about the world. And what Christianity claims, friends, is that Advent is a cataclysm in space and time. So in a sense, it would be weird if everything did make perfect sense from a human perspective, if our human expectations were perfectly predictive of the world, then how could Advent be that cataclysmic? For decades, scientists have known about the existence of these gravitational waves. I'm doing that with my hand because that's what they look like in space. They've always, not always, they've known for decades that they exist. They're generated from the Big Bang from the very initial moments, but it's only been in the last few years that they've been able to prove it empirically. Did I get that right, Tracy? I hope more or less. We have some PhD scientists in this room, and so I have to be very careful when I move into the science realm, but let's just, let's just take it for granted that that was right, more or less. They knew these waves existed and were generated by this cataclysm of the Big Bang 14 billion plus years earlier. But before they had hard evidence, before they could prove it, they still lived as if they existed. They still continued to do their work on the basis of the truth that these things existed. And Advent tells us that this cataclysm has happened, but that God has not stayed distant or disinterested, but that Jesus moves into, He enters into our world and He sits with us in the midst of this disorientation. In fact, He enters in to the disorientation of the entire world and on the cross, 
he contradicts it, and he absorbs it, and he undermines it. And now we live in a world whose time and values and really space have been disrupted. They've been disoriented. And in a sense, that's the expectation that we live into because of Advent. Not everything makes perfect sense, nor should we expect it in a world where God takes on flesh and where God goes to a cross. How can a world where that happens make perfect sense from our human perspective? But if God went to a cross to suffer for you, surely what you're experiencing isn't evidence of His abandonment. And it's not evidence of a meaningless world, but a world in which He says, I will go with you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for going with us. Thank You for coming initially, coming into our lives, coming into this church, and we pray that we would follow You on the basis of Your advent. And we pray in Your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table, we see how He has entered into the world, not just with words, certainly not with platitudes, certainly not in the abstract, but in the personal and the real and the tangible. And He comes in His own body, and He gives up His body, and therefore we eat of this bread and this wine, not only in commemoration of that coming, but also in a way to receive it more fully. It's a means of grace. And so if you're in need of that means of grace, then come and participate in this meal and be renewed. And if you're here at Advent and this is the only time you come during the year and you're asking questions, you're wondering if this could all make sense and it could make sense of your life, then please feel free to continue to come and come at your own pace. Feel free to sit and contemplate and ask questions and don't feel compelled to do anything that would feel ritualistic or feel premature for your life. Let's pray for our meal together. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would feed us in our innermost being, that you would make these elements to be for us your body and your blood, and that we would feast on you forevermore. And it's in your Son Jesus' name. Amen.